What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> Might come back to some of that. First, let's just get it started. I'm Chase Winnegar, host of the podcast. Today's guest is Joe Lacefield. I'm a private lands wildlife biologist yep. and avid deer hunter. So you work trophy hunter, trapper, yeah, every, everything. everything, right? <laughs> pretty well, much. Well, that's kind point. of that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast, and I've thought about this for quite a while. I wanted to have you on because, I mean, it seems like you're just an outdoorsman, a woodsman. You're like you said, private lands biologist. I'm assuming you know quite a bit about habitat, about just animal behavior in general. I know you're into mushroom hunting, so you obviously know plants. And if you're collecting mushrooms, then you have to know quite a bit about what you're collecting because the way I understand it, mushrooms can be, you know, good or bad one that's, way or the other. That's right. Yep. It only takes one bad one to ruin your, your day. Yeah. I, that's why I don't feel confident enough to go out and do it. I've got some buddies that do some serious mushroom hunting, uh, especially around the creeks. Yeah, and sometimes I find a mushroom and I'll send him a picture of it and he'll he'll come out there and collect it. And he's actually got a buyer and he's sold batches of mushrooms for like seven, eight hundred bucks to small delis and groceries right. and stuff like that. So right. it's something I should probably learn more about. But deer season's right around the corner. That's what a lot of people are thinking about. Well, there's also squirrel season just came in, dove season's coming up. There's a lot going on, but I kind of wanted to talk about just deer season or kind of focus on that. Okay. And I put a couple feelers out on social media earlier, and I got people to give me some questions. And those are still coming in. Awesome. So towards the end, I, I want to go through some questions people ask also. And we can just answer those together. I've, I've glanced at them, and most of them are kind of like tactics or how would you do this, how would you do that. But let me see what I've, what I've got here. So you're kind of a unique hunter, in my opinion, because of how you go about bow hunting. So describe that real quick for the people who are listening? Well, I started out deer hunting uh -huh. when I was 14. and How long ago was that? You said you're 54? 40 years ago. 40 years ago. So I learned deer hunting pretty much on my own. My dad mm -hmm. didn't deer hunt and failed the first year, mm -hmm. didn't, didn't harvest a deer. The second year, on my 15th birthday, I spent all my fur trapping money muskrats and possums and mm -hmm. coons and bought a Remington 243. It's mm -hmm. the only rifle I've ever bought. The only rifle you've ever bought. Man. And the next year, when I was 15, I harvested my first buck. It mm -hmm. was an eight-pointer. And there were eight deer harvested in Woodford County that year. Eight deer? Eight deer. And so you said you were 15. That would have been, so what year was that? 1980. 1980, only eight deer taken in Woodford County. And now we kill around 800 a year. Yeah, Woodford County is up there on the list now. It's like a top 15 county? I don't think so, Somewhere around not there. number wise. Okay, no. I'll, look at, I'll look at the top 10 counties each year. And for some reason I was thinking Woodford touched on that list sometimes, but. We have several counties that, that kill two, 3,000 deer. So yeah, I'm Shelby not... County, uh, Crittenden, uh, Breathitt, um, Pendleton. Pendleton. Henry County is usually up there. Owen. There's kind of that area in the bluegrass region here. And then you also have a couple of counties out in western Kentucky. Right. That always kill big numbers. But if you looked at it on a habitat standpoint, Woodford County mostly is riparian habitat along the river and the streams and yeah. everything else is horse farming developed. And yeah, that's although true. Although there's a few deer there, there's not much hunting opportunity. Well, there's some good deer there. there I saw, are, I saw the are. one you harvested last year. I consider that to be a good deer. I mean, a good mature 10 pointer. Right. And the way you took it, that's what I was getting at. This is why you're kind of unique. Right. So I've evolved as a deer hunter in that 
the first time I harvested a deer, it was like, I, I just want to get a deer. I want to get yep. a deer. And every doe that came through, we couldn't mm -hmm. shoot does then. Yeah. So people have it great now in that yeah. they can shoot as many does as they want to, yet people don't do it. Mm -hmm. I know every deer that came through, I was looking at just hoping it had, at that time we had to have either a forked antler or four inches of, of a spiked antler yeah. or any antler, four inches was what was considered an antler deer. And I saw lots of does and never had opportunities for the most part. Yeah. And now we have lots of opportunity. Yeah. And as that's gone on, not that I didn't enjoy rifle hunting, it was quite crowded. At that time, we only had three days. Three days. Three days. That was gun deer season. Mm -hmm. And everybody that even thought they wanted to deer hunt was parked on the side of the road somewhere deer hunting during yeah. those three days. Oh, yeah. Because with such little opportunity, you've got to be there. Right. That's Everybody took those days off work. Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> so now that we have much longer season, mm -hmm. it, it seems to many people that there aren't as many people hunting, mm -hmm. when in reality they are, they're just scattered out, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Yeah, that makes sense. But you make things more difficult on yourself now because you got you have more options. You can shoot those now. There's a, so many more deer. So you, you kind of balance that out and make things harder on yourself at the same time, right? I do. It makes it more rewarding. And the way you do it, I mean, exactly. It's more rewarding. The way that you make it harder on yourself is you take a tree and you make a bow out of it and you hunt with a bow. So you hand make long bows literally out of trees that are growing on your property. And you do that every year, two years? Well, I try to, you know, I, yeah. I don't always, sometimes I make bows for other people and yeah. don't end up making one for myself. So, so sometimes I got one that, I, that shoots so well, I want to keep using it. I got to imagine that making a bow yourself out of a tree, and I think you've done this for us before on the show, Right. You used an Osage tree. So building that bow yourself and putting all that work and time in and then taking a bow that's more difficult in general to hunt with out in the woods, I've got to imagine that first time you were successful and you got, you know, that buck you were after with it, it had to be pretty, pretty awesome. It was. The first deer I took with a bow I made was a doe. Okay. And that was a, as exciting yeah. as almost any deer. With the exception of that first eight pointer in mm -hmm. 1980, I don't think I'll ever surpass that. Yeah. You know, even some of the really nice deer I've taken over the years. Yeah. It just doesn't compare to that first one. Like that deer that you took uh, last year, I consider that to be a trophy deer by any standards, but done in that way. Like I try to put myself in that mindset, like, you know, cause I challenge myself as a deer hunter too. That's why I told you earlier, no knock on people who rifle hunt. And a lot of times it comes down to opportunity and time and things like that. But I challenge myself in a way also because I pretty much just bow hunt for a buck. And I try to pick out one deer and I try to hunt that deer specifically. And that kind of, you know, makes it more difficult than just sitting in the woods and hoping a good deer walks by and picking one out on the hoof. And um, that's more rewarding for me too. When I, when I get that one deer I was after, it's like that was my hunt. The whole season was that big, long hunt for that one deer. So that, that's what I was getting at. You basically just make it more difficult on yourself. And I think that's pretty cool, the way you go about doing it. It's definitely, definitely fun. Yeah. You know, and, and the does, you know, I, I harvested four does with a bow last year. Mm -hmm. All with a longbow? All with a longbow. Man. Um, huh. I'll tell you I what. Got a, I got a double during one of the snows. My wife wasn't real happy. I, I said, honey, uh, it snowed last night. I'm going deer hunting. Oh, you have to. I had to. Especially that first snow of the year. And sitting there in a cedar tree and the blanket of white and the deer yep. start coming through. And I, it's, there's something magical about that. You know, unlike each morning, that's oh, an I amazing remember, thing. But it was probably the same weekend you're talking about last year. It snowed, so I said I'm hitting the woods, and it seems like 
you see so many more deer when there's snow on the ground. And it's just, you know, a unique environment anyway. You see, things look different than they do any other time, so it's like a whole different experience. But it seems like you see more deer. And I'm not sure if they're just on the hoof more or if you can you just have better visibility they're more visible for yeah. sure there's no question it does seem like but they, i think they're more active too yeah. i think they like we in a sense you know it's a kind of like a childhood yeah. uh, wonder when i yeah. was a kid whenever we had snow i was out there following tracks yep. and looking i mean fox tracks led me to places and taught me things when i was 12 13 years yeah. old that because you were a trapper at that age correct yeah so you were learning stuff I, you can well, you can learn so much more in the snow, that's 100% for sure, because you don't miss tracks. I mean, even if you're walking around and you're really paying attention on your average day, even after a rain, I'm sure that you're overlooking tracks and missing them, but oh, you don't absolutely. miss them in the snow. You don't miss them in the snow. And I've got to imagine that a deer's sense of smell is probably heightened in the snow also. Does that make sense at all? I guess it would depend on whether it was a dry snow or a fluffy snow. You know, if it's if it's if there's more moisture in the air, they can certainly smell yeah. things better than if I'd, it's if I'd it's dry. If maybe they they feel safer because obviously deer kind of rely on their nose, and if that's why when the wind's out of the east, in my opinion, deer movement isn't quite as good because they set themselves up and they travel in a way that's you know made for a typical wind. So when you have an abnormal wind, and my my theory is they just don't feel as comfortable. So they kind of, you know, might be a little bit more hunkered down. Does that make sense at all to you? Yeah, I, well, wind direction, most of the time, we as hunters set our stands up for a west wind. Well, or north I, wind have, or something I have like stands that. set up for all of them. So when you have an east wind, you probably have the least amount of stands that you want to hunt as, yeah. as any other direction. Well, some of that has to do with property layout. Too. Sure, absolutely. So, yeah. so let's see. Here's what I wanted to know. So deer season's coming up. What are you doing right now to get yourself ready? Not as much as I should be. That's kind of how I felt too a couple weeks ago. I'm a little overwhelmed. <laughs> it's like, I've oh, got yeah. a week or two. And yeah. anyway. Uh, what, do, what would you suggest doing right now? What, what do you wish you were doing if you're not doing so, it? So typically I, I wash all my clothes, yeah. you know, get them as scent free as possible. Mm -hmm. While I'm not um, completely sold on the scent eliminating products? I, I don't think it, I, I, we talked about this on the last podcast with uh, Brandon Williams, a buddy of mine. And I mean, when you breathe, yeah, yeah, when, you, when you sweat, it's impossible yeah, to eliminate your you're, scent. You're not eliminate, but yeah. you can reduce that footprint enough. Mm -hmm. Deer smell us. We're not in the Northwoods where deer may not encounter a human. Yeah. You know, where I hunt, deer smell people every day. But oh, yeah. They're smelling them at a difference yeah. or distance and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, but the wind direction is key. You know, a mature deer, if you're hunting a particular deer that's an older deer most likely, is going to pay attention to the wind direction mm -hmm. and try to keep the wind in his face. Oh yeah. I've had, I've had bucks that I knew where they were, I knew where they were going, and I knew the wind was right. So I'm in the stand and it's getting to be that last 30 minutes and they come so close and the wind is in my face and the wind dies in that last half hour of light. Mm -hmm. it does then that. the thermals They're, start yeah. taking over and mm -hmm. the scent goes right to the buck and they turn around and go back where they came yep. from. So, <laughs> you know, you can't... Well, deer living by, living, they don't buy anything. They live and die by their nose. Right. And if that deer has lived long enough to be old and mature, a big buck, the chances are he does something right in you know, like regards to how he uses his nose. And I think that's why some deer get big. And it, is. It, may, it might be experiences. They might, I mean, get smart. They might get educated to, you know, 
have, have a close call or two and start, you know, always circling downwind. I, and I believe that they know where your stands are if they've busted you before. And, True, I, mean, I agree. I, I've seen, like, on my trail camera, my, some photos I've had, I mean, that deer will be staring directly at my stand, where, where he thinks I should be. I've read multiple studies of telemetry of uh -huh. deer and hunters, and they do recognize where deer are or where hunters or stands are, at the activity, you know, and just going in and clearing lanes, and, yeah. you know, they know things are about to happen. I try to be as low impact as possible. So I don't put corn or any bait or anything like that out. I basically try to find a deer and hunt it with as little disturbance as possible. And I'll pick out a tree in a location that, you know, I'm not, I'm hanging a stand tomorrow and I'm not going to cut branches. I'm going to position myself in a way where this close to the season where I'll be in good shape, I hope. And uh, earlier we were talking about scent free. One reason that I, because I don't think you can eliminate scent, and I think if a deer gets downwind, it's going to smell you. But when you walk in, you're brushing up against um, leaves and twigs and branches, and I think that having as scent-free a clothing as possible puts less of your scent out there on the ground or on the bushes for the deer to smell and maybe get weary of the area. Agree. Does that make sense at I, all? I, I totally agree. That's why rubber boots. Yeah, unless you know, unless someone has deer, they've been putting bait out, and they've been wearing this pair of leather mm -hmm. boots every time they put bait out, and they look at their camera, and there's a deer in there five minutes after they put bait out. Yeah. You know, sometimes you can condition a deer. That's what one of my buddies does. He you, you know, he literally says that he wants the deer to know he's there. Yeah. He drives right up to his spot. He puts bait out. He leaves, and he has trail camera pictures of deer 20 minutes after he's out of there. And I mean, he's the one buddy of mine that most consistently kills opening weekend. He's training his deer. He yeah, he has the exact, it's, it's funny because I had him on two podcasts ago, or three podcasts ago, and our philosophies are literally the exact opposite. opposite. Yeah, exact opposite. And it, we kind of tried to show how you can be successful with either one because, I mean, I had our average date of kill and his was a, a month and a half before mine. Right. And then the average score of the deer harvested was almost identical. So just his strategy leads to one outcome, and my strategy leads leads to another. The amount of hours and time that he puts in preseason just completely surpassed me, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, I'm, where I meet with landowners, yeah. the the complexity is so different you now know, compared to 30 years ago. Real quick, tell, what do you tell? Like in a nutshell, what do you do for the department? Because people might not know right. that you meet with landowners. So as a private lands biologist, I primarily meet with landowners who want to improve habitat okay. for wildlife, whether that's butterflies or whether that's quail, rabbits, deer, turkey, mm -hmm. all wildlife, whatever they're interested in. And I take pride in that I, I've trained bird dogs, I've had beagles, I've had coon hounds, I've yep. basically participated in every type of hunting activity the department does, except for falconry, and I'm amazed by that. I mm -hmm. want to see that sometime. <laughs> oh yeah, that's cool. You know Steve Stacy? I don't. Okay, you know who he is, though, right? I've heard the name. Yes. Yeah, he he's into falconry, and I've been out to his house. He has some he has some birds. It's pretty interesting. It looks pretty interesting. I'll agree with that. So when you're meeting with people and you're giving, so you're advising them on how to improve their property right. for wildlife, right? And they can pick out a specific you know focus of wildlife that they want to improve their 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 property for, right? Correct. But the way I understand it, and tell me if I'm right or wrong, typically habitat improvement for one species is going to improve habitat for all species. For the most part. And there's some general things that people can do to improve habitat on their property that are going to benefit wildlife across the board. Absolutely. What's the number one thing that you see? 
not mowing too much. Not that's that's the good thing. It's not mowing, right? It is for me. I hate yeah. to mow. Yeah. But yeah. many times someone will buy a farm, mm -hmm. and they call me and say, "Hey, I bought a farm in X county. I want you to come out, but I got to clean it up first. Mm. And you know they'll go in. It's been abandoned for a few years, and it's got some head high weeds and three quarter inch saplings and. Mm -hmm. When I get out there, they say, "Okay, I'm interested in rabbits and deer. What can I do?" Uh -huh. I'm like, "Well, I really wish you'd have me out before you mow." Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because now it's going to take a whole another year to get. Well, it's just you know, it's funny how well we couldn't see anything. I'm like, "Well, I mean, you don't have to actually see everything." What, what do you, you think about doing like a, a, a around the edges of the field? Well, edge feathering, for example, is yeah. a great practice. It's highly underutilized. Mm -hmm. Now with the ash die off, it's probably not as crucial. You know, in recent years with the, the ash die mm -hmm. off, we, we're having woodland thinning throughout the central part of the state, especially. Maybe not so much in the Cumberland Plateau, but I everywhere know, else. I know I picked a big d dead ash branch up out of my yard this morning. Yeah, so it's allowing a lot of herbaceous growth and woody growth in the woods. Mm -hmm. Deer are a creature of edge, so they like edge habitat. Th that edge, and that's basically increase tremendously when you do edge feathering. It also increases soft mast and herbaceous cover for quail and rabbits. Uh, when you say edge feathering, what exactly does it Okay, mean? edge feathering would be, you know, consider your, your woodland edge and you've got, a, you've got a field and a hard edge with big trees that are okay. 50 feet tall. Yeah. You go in for the first 50 feet and remove 50% or 75% even of the canopy of that so edge. of the tall trees. So you're taking that, you know, you're girdling them, felling them, whichever might be appropriate. And then for the next 50 feet, you do 50%. For the next 50 feet, you do 25%. Okay. So you've created a gradient. Okay. And it's gonna make deer utilize that edge more. It's gonna make other wildlife utilize that edge. It increases travel corridors, escape cover, mm -hmm. increases browse. And it's probably a, a greater diversity of, um, of plant types that you'll have there also, because I'm assuming some need more light, some need less light. It, exactly, and yeah. it also um, allows you to control some of the invasive species mm -hmm. that might be problematic, you know, in the woods, tree of heaven, you know, that, that's something that so, can be problematic in areas. So it's basically just a soft transition between a, a hard field edge and, you know, true woods. Yes, and yeah. if you've got areas that are really steep sloped and your open fields are big, and you, you can, also do that by planting desirable trees along the edge and give the give you a 50 foot buffer of hmm. you know white oaks and soft masts persimmons different things that that will benefit wildlife i'll say this real quick um on a farm that i hunt i've seen so i mean it's there's two sides of the farm and i used to hunt one side of the farm but over the past three years i've seen so much improvement on the opposite side that i i didn't pay much attention to in the past and the reason for that improvement is that the land next to it was sold and the people who own that property don't do anything to it. It's just tall, I mean, huge, tall, grown-up fields. And there are a lot of animals that feel safe in that area. Right. And and I've, they'll, I have a water source on my property and they will literally just come down out of those those tall, overgrown fields. And it seems like they like that spot because, I, I mean, I've talked to the people who own the property across the way from me, I've had to go over there and retrieve deer. So I've walked that area before, and I mean, you can see the beds right there near the edges of that tall grass field. And I, I do think that that's something that I wish more people did. Well, from a deer perspective, especially, yeah. uh, you know, a mature buck learns where he is safe. Uh -huh. And when he can bed somewhere 
that nothing can come within a reasonable distance without him hearing it. Yes. No, I trust me. I'm you know, that that's the places they like to be. And sometimes that's a small sinkhole. Sometimes that's out of the beaten path and the hunters aren't going there. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know how many times I've had rabbit hunters say, well, you wouldn't believe the bucket. We jumped out of that little two acre yep. wet spot. Um, yep. Anybody know that was around? You know, so sanctuaries are something that people can do if they have enough acreage, yep. create a sanctuary within their property that they don't go. Yeah, do you suggest that to people? I, I do. I've read that before, 30% rule is what I've read. Um, I'm not sure if that's... Anything's better than nothing. Yeah. I, you know, and I'll give you an example of the, for example, the widow lady who has the 40 acres adjacent to where you're hunting and all the bucks are always on her farm. Yeah. It's because <laughs> she's not walking around Because she's not right. out there yeah. walking around yeah, or true. letting anybody hunt. I, I typically know where to expect deer to bed at. And of course, deer bed all over the place. There's a, there's a doe in a tree line that you'll never even think about. But typically it seems like year after year, I can guess where a dominant buck, the general area, where he's gonna like. Maybe it's because it's preferred habitat and he's the one who, who gets it. I'm not sure if that's how it works, but it seems like I can always narrow down an area and I will do my best not to touch that area. Right. Ever. Right. Until I have to walk in there and retrieve, hopefully. I, I, I cringe when I see people walk up to a rub and they take their fingers and they, they caress the rub and go, oh, this is a nice one. Oh. I, you know, I'm... I'm yeah. That, that's... <laughs> I'm not OCD about anything, but I don't ever touch a, a, deer, a, a deer rub or licking branch or anything unless I'm making a mock scrape or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know what? Real quick, two arguments I have with my buddies. Tell me, tell me who's right, who's wrong. So, um, peeing in the woods. Do you think that affects the deer at all? No. Okay. Well, then I would be wrong on that one because <laughs> I, uh, I always say, well, you know, they can they can smell where another deer has urinated and they can tell the, the gender and the age or the dominance level of that deer. I say there's no way they can't tell that it's a person. But I used just, to carry a jug. I used to be. I do that. that I, yeah. I, I used, you know, I didn't want anything like that yeah. to this will probably go in my hunt. Here so in three weeks, this will probably be riding around the backpack with me. So <laughs> some, of, some of the biggest deer I've, I've harvested, I, I had to relieve myself from a tree stand and uh, the deer literally was walking right past my tree and never even yeah. blinked. Oh. And, I, and I've, you know, one of my camera, trail camera techniques is to make mock scrapes and I urinate in the scrape yeah, myself. Yeah, I've heard that works well. And it works very well. I've had bucks within three hours leaving their scent in the same scrape. So I'll show you another thing that we kind of have a debate over. And I'm going to describe this to people who are listening. So you see that property? This area right in here is where we access it from. Okay. Those are my buddy's stand locations. And what you'll see there is that they are on the far edges. Yeah. Of, I mean, it's pretty much you have to trek the whole farm right. to get to where you want to hunt it. I tell them, I, I say, you need to look at the base of that Y-shaped finger. I say, you need to, you know, hunt closer to the truck because you're essentially walking every tree line or driving every tree line every time you go hunting. Yeah, you're pushing deer to other people. You're going to be pushing deer off the property. Yeah. So am I right on that one? I agree with you. I'll take 50-50. <laughs> because I literally, I mean, it seems like when I, I used to want to walk to the far corner of the earth every time I went hunting too. It's always the very back of the property that's the best, right? It's the grass is always greener. Is right. kind of how right. it seems. And, and I, you know, I have landowners and people that lease and deer hunt Lots of conflicts about hunting property lines. and Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's for know, sure. Everybody wants to hunt close to a property line for some reason. They think it's on the other person's property. But now I've found that the way I'm hunting now, if from where I park, it is the first tree line that I walk to. I'm trying. It's, it, it's easier, but I'm not really doing it because it's easier. It's because I found that walking on my property less, you know, 
it, I, I just have better success that way. I see more deer. The, tr the truck doesn't bother the deer. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's crazy that you, know, you park a truck and then you go to hunt and then you, for whatever reason, when you get back, oh. I don't know how many times I've had deer standing within 20 yeah. yards of the vehicle. I, if I say, if we just would have stayed at the truck. <laughs> that's happened, that happened to me so many times last year. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what I wanted to hit on there. So we talked about what you know, you'd be doing to prepare right now. What, what do you, so the way I see it, they're kind of within Kentucky's deer season. There are almost four seasons. Correct. And you could almost split it up by month. You have September, which has certain patterns and the deer are doing certain things. October rolls around, things change. Then November, the rut is full effect. Then you have post rut in winter. So that's kind of the way I break it up. And it's almost literally by month for me. Yeah. So as someone who knows a lot more about plants and habitat and deer movement than I do, what do you think the main difference, what, what, what do you look for in September? Hayfield patterns. Okay. I mean, that's, they're coming to the open fields and still feeding on legumes, clover, alfalfa, things uh, that are out in the field. If you have, if you have crops, it's going to be soybeans. Or if you have crops, it's going to be soybeans. If you have standing corn, they're probably using the corn more for the cover than they are the food yeah. at this time. But that cover is a critical factor when you consider some of the big open fields that, that have large acreages of standing corn. Mm -hmm. so, um, so water is a big factor if you have a really dry period. Yeah, you know, like we, we had the past three weeks. Yes. Uh -huh. So in September, well, let me ask you this before, because I wanted to get your opinion on those four different stages. Okay. But when you set up, do you try to set up between bed and, and food, basically? I'm usually setting up fence crossings. Okay, so you're looking for a funnel or a pinch point. Something that I can get to mm -hmm. easily. So I hunt a lot of field edges during okay. September. I don't want to be in the woods leaving more scent than I have to. Mm -hmm. I don't want to push anything out. If the wind changes direction, I can jump my, my tail out of the tree and go yep. to the truck. Well, the thing is, in September, there's so many leaves on the trees. Hunting the woods is extremely difficult. Because, yes. I mean, you can walk right up on a deer before you, you know, you're more likely to bust them without ever seeing them. Now, I will say if I'm, generally in September, I'm hunting more afternoons than I am mornings. Yeah. If I'm hunting somewhere in the morning, I try to get deeper in the woods where I can catch the deer coming to bed. Coming to bed. Mm -hmm. So in general though, season, I mean, I guess things go out the window during the rut, but looking for areas in September where you can get to easily and the deer are coming to, to food, and you're saying that in the, that September area, they're usually going to the open fields, trying to get you know, fescue or clover or soybeans or whatever. Yes, and in the places that I hunt, you know, in the... How important is water? I know you said it's important, but don't deer get a lot of their water from their diet? If, if there's enough moisture in the, in the vegetation that they're feeding on, generally they, they don't drink as much as people think. Yeah. But when it's dry, like it's been for the last several weeks... They have to. Uh, they're gonna hit those pools in the creeks, they're gonna you know, go to ponds, those are definitely key points. And I've even, some places, buried little... Uh, swimming pools? Well, not swimming pools, but take a 55-gallon drum, cut it in half lengthwise, uh -huh. bury that. It makes a really good uh, permanent water source in See, the woods. I, uh, I tell you what, I just got distracted. I, I bought a cell camera the other day that sends me my pictures straight to my phone, and it's lit up twice since we sat down <laughs> and told me I have new images available. So yeah, that would drive me nuts. I oh, it's exciting though. And if you go about it, like I said earlier, where you try to stay out, you yes. try to be low impact. I could put that camera up and stay out of there for three or four months 
and it's just going to keep sending. There's no reason for me to go. And the battery life on cameras is, is amazing it's a, yeah, it's, now compared, you know. And without, when you don't put bait or anything out, you get less pictures. So it's not like I'm running through battery like crazy. See, big old fat doe needed a drink. Anyway, so that's September. What do you look for in October? Pre-ruts coming in, acres. I'm look, I'm, I am finding the trees that they want now. Is that a deer's number one food source in your opinion? In, in October. Preferred food source. In tours. October. Yeah, in October. So look in for late the, September in some places. Look for the oaks. They're easy to find. Those trees are easy to find. And if you know where they're at, you just find out where they're at, and you can count on them year after year, pretty much. Yeah, you're going to have some off years, but well, there will be certain trees that are sweeter that the deer will go to before they go to others. Yeah. Um, well, is it generally they like white oaks better? I was going to say white oak, black oak. There's a red and a burr. Yeah, and the, and the well, the burr oak is a type of white oak. Okay. You, you have you have the red oak group and you have the white oak group, okay. and there's lots of oaks in each. Um, but the true white oak is the absolutely most highly preferred. Okay. And the you know we get a lot of Schumard oaks around here. They have a great big acorn, and if you can find one of those that they like for whatever reason, it can be as good as any white oak. I used to hunt a spot with several oak trees around, and it was um, in October. I mean, the deer would just be piling in there and all around me. <coughs> You're good. Um, yeah, but you know what I mean. So basically, I, I agree with you 100% that those oaks definitely draw deer in, and they typically drop in October. Early October, you're saying? They're starting to drop now. There's okay. there's some acorns falling already. But they aren't really hitting that food source until it's there consistently for them, right? They will be. Okay. I didn't know if the squirrels were... Oh, I see. You got a picture plot. Those are some healthy-looking acorns there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, you know, it, when you see them clumped up... Yeah. Six, seven on a... Big balls on yeah. the end of the branches. You know yeah. that tree's going to be dropping pretty good. Yeah. So, you, yeah, look for the oak trees. And then, so, aside from food, the deer's patterns also change in October. I feel like, you know, a little bit of pre-rut action. You, that's when I start to tickle the horns together and make a little bit of noise. And yeah, as soon as the velvet comes off, those bucks are sparring and they're sizing each other up. Mm -hmm. And when those bachelor groups get scattered for whatever yeah. reason, you went to your tree stand, they busted up. Rattling is, is one way that they'll, they'll respond. They may not as respond aggressively like they yeah. will later on. I feel like a lot of young bucks respond early. I, I don't typically have luck with mature bucks until the last week of October, first week of November. It seems like that's when they get, you know, that net gets big and round and they're ready to go. I've had some pretty good luck in mid-October. Well, mid-October, yeah. But, but I, I don't think I'm going to rattle much on September 21st or anything like that. You know, if a person is just tickling them a little bit. Yeah. I, I think it's a good tool to have in that, you know, you've got deer that are coming around you can't see. Yeah. They can't see you either. Yeah. And if it's a, a buck, he probably will check it out. Okay. But he may circle downwind to he check may, it he out. Skirt, he won't come in around, yeah. carelessly like they will later on in October. And that will, and even in October, that's one thing. Okay. We talked about deer winding you earlier. And if you're doing calls, I'm convinced that those deer, if you bleat or grunt or snort wheeze or rattle, anything you do, I'm convinced those deer can pinpoint you. Absolutely. Even, even if they're 100 yards away, they know exactly where it came from. And I've, it seems like every time, or 90% of the time, the, that nice mature deer is, he's heading downwind. So it's important to, that wind's important because you want to be able to get a shot at him before he gets there. Right. And uh, you know, if you're hunting a narrow tree line, a lot of times they'll come down that tree line to circle downwind 
Decoy, decoys can be a, a tipping point if you've never used a decoy I've, archery hunting. Best buck I've taken in my life was with a decoy. But, and it's, it's great, you put the decoy out there, the deer are no longer so curious about, all right, well, I gotta make sure I know what made that sound because they think they know what made the sound. It's just like coyotes when, if you do a rabbit distress, a coyote says, okay, that, that rabbit's in distress, I wanna know why before I go running right up to it. But if you do coyote house, a lot of times they'll come in a little bit more carelessly because they don't think that something's being distressed. Does that make sense at all? So if the deer can see what they think they heard, they're less likely to want to double check by circling around. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I have a little different theory on that. I think if they see a decoy, they're using that as their buddy. Well, if he's there, it's okay. Oh, okay. So you think it's like a, um, Okay, yeah, that it's makes conf sense. A confidence decoy, okay. bas basically. Yeah, um, that makes sense and, too. and the success that I've had with decoys, if a deer pops up on one 20 yards in the woods and that's the first time they see it, they're probably going to bolt from it. But if they can see it 50 or 60 yards away, then their their head is right in it. They're, they're coming, yeah. they're going to respond favor favorably so, to that. Sometimes, uh, you know, I think a, a decoy works great for getting a deer in range, but sometimes it can be a little bit strange when you have several deer want to come in and hang out and none of them are deer that you particularly want to shoot because you know sometimes those little bucks will walk right up to it right. and turn around right. and walk away and then you know you'll have a doe come stomping in at it because she can tell something's just usually not does right. won't usually do, you know i use buck decoys almost exclusively that's what i used to yeah and his name is gunther my you, buck decoy. usually the does will, will will leave they won't they yeah. won't come to that buck decoy but it's it's interesting and, and it's hurt me a few times you know you know where i do hunt edge country that has a lot of woven wire fences. Uh -huh. Had my decoy set up. I knew where the deer were going to be bedding. Again, it's late October, early November. The buck I'm really focusing on is chasing a doe, uh -huh. and that doe sees a decoy, jumps the fence, and takes him off. Oh, the other so yeah. I so, can see how that could work. Uh, they can hurt you on closer to the rut. So usually after the first five days of November, my general rule. I won't use a decoy. Yeah, that makes sense. What about a doe decoy? Would you switch up? Then? I, you could switch up then. Yeah. Yes. Because, I mean, that's the time I have the most success, and we're talking about October, trying to talk about October. The time of the year I have the most success is October, pre-rut, deer getting territorial. I can talk to them. I can rattle them in. They're being really responsive. I can see a buck out in the field, and if I grunt at him a couple of times and hit the horns together, I feel like 50-50, he's, he's marching to me. So that's, that's the time I have the most success, and that's my favorite time to bow hunt. And Agreed. That being said, I might enjoy the rut a whole lot, but I've been lucky to not have a buck tag left during the rut. I like hunting the rut because of the excitement you can hear and see. Yeah, so much but, happens. But it's very frustrating for me. The rut? Yes. Why is that? Well, I'm a 10-yard guy. Okay. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that, I can, yeah. So because you're the, yeah. the stick yeah. and strain, literally. And, and, and when they you know come by at 30 yards and mm -hmm. I can't stop them. Yeah. You know, get their attention because they're in zombie mode. They're focused. You know, it's it's hard to. It's frustrating when those type of things happen. Although you see a lot of deer, you see a lot more deer. Yeah. The first week of November and second week of November than. One of my favorite things about deer hunting is just being in the woods and seeing the action. Because, I mean, I like I like nature watching in general, but without a specific goal in mind, it's hard for me to want to to get myself out in the woods and just to sit still and for hours at a time observe what I see. But when I have a goal, which is harvesting a deer, 
you know, 95% of my hunts are going to be unsuccessful. So that means 95% of the time, all I'm doing is sitting in the woods and observing. Right. And so I see so much cool stuff as for, especially hunting on a creek, which is where I'm hunting a creek or hunting a big field and just observing, you'll see so much wildlife, otters, fox, coyotes, raccoons, uh, herons, turkeys. I mean, pretty much everything you could imagine. The occasional horseback rider will right. come right by right. me. And you're in Woodford County, so you know that too. Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of that. <laughs> I, I I haven't had horses per se, but I've I've had friends that I've put in tree stands have somebody ride a horse by them before. Yeah, well <laughs> we've we've had a ton of horses come by us before, and they don't mess the deer up too bad, but it's still a little bit frustrating sometimes when people ride across your property. Well, it's in your uh, it, it just messes with your your mindset. Yeah, it's your more confidence than any, more than anything. When you get out there. Like last year, we had a hunt on the TV show. I don't know if you watched it or not. It was where Chad, it was a, he took two does, and he had a really nice buck at like 12 yards. Well, we get in the stand, and 20 minutes in, a four-wheeler comes riding literally eight yards from us and skirts the whole field edge and then comes right back and does it again. Well, our confidence was just in the dirt, sitting in the stand, below, sitting on the ground below us. And, and um, 25 minutes later, here came the deer. But, I mean, if it was me personally, on that hunt, I would have just been rock bottom. After that four-wheeler came and went, I would have been thinking, well, I just wasted my time. But it doesn't always happen like that. So. No, nope. nope. there's definitely variables we don't anticipate. And thinking of those ahead of time, if you can, definitely yeah. helps you address them when they come up and, and it doesn't upset you. I mean, the deer, they're experiencing everything from yeah. walkers, mushroom hunters. Yeah. The whole yep, trappers know, out there every single day. Trying. They don't leave the country. A dog, you know, a lot of people yeah. complain about dogs, but dogs are out there all the time. If you're oh, yeah. well, deer live with coyotes. Yeah, so, and I, that's one of my favorite things to watch is how deer and coyotes interact together. Agreed. Me yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of fun to see. I've seen coyotes bedded in a clover field and deer eating within 20 yards of them, and mm -hmm. and both were aware of the other's presence, but yep, it was like no big deal. I, uh, you've taken coyotes with your bow before too, mm -hmm. right? I've taken several coyotes with my bow, and I've had some of the most frustrating hunts ever because I, I don't know. I've had literally coyotes come by on a single file line, you know, three coyotes one after the other, and all of them just skirt me, at, you know, 35 yards and wouldn't get stopped. And so, you know, the first coyote comes through, and I'm ready and pull back, and it doesn't stop. I don't, I don't take the shot. Put my bow back down. Two minutes later, here comes another coyote on the exact same. But it's it's fun when you know where a coyote's at. Like I've watched them go in a small patch of of brush and bed down and then you'll see a deer come out and the deer gets downwind and all of a sudden even without seeing the coyote you get to see how the deer reacts and well that's fun. Uh, a little yeah. off topic there. But we went through September, we've kind of touched on October. In November I've got to imagine the strategy completely changes. My, my strategy in November is is pinch points. Pinch points? I was going to say travel. Primarily. High yeah. travel Tra areas. Yes. You know, areas where habitat restricts where they're likely to be. And we're talking about from bow hunters' perspective. We're talking about from a bow hunter, but gun hunters can use that logic as well in that if you've ever rabbit hunted with beagles and you ever go with a group of guys and there's always one guy in the group that always gets the shots and he's got his limit before, well, he knows where to be and how to be still. Mm -hmm. The same theory can be applied to gun, or I say gun deer, but deer hunting the rut uh -huh. because the does are going to be evasive from the bucks. They're, uh -huh. they're going to be moving in thickets, in bottlenecks, areas uh -huh. that um, they can get through and go to thicker cover. So uh -huh. I like 
bottlenecks near really dense bedding cover yeah, yeah. are the places that I like to select if I'm going to a new place. For example, you know, I used to go to Fort Knox all the time, uh -huh. bow hunting, and uh, that was pretty amazing. There. I would love to go to Fort Knox. I need to start looking to put in for that because that, I mean, that's still the one way you can get a two buck. Y yes, and you, you know, unless you put in for the last weekend in October or the first two weekends in November, you can just sign up and go hunt. Yeah, that'd be nice, especially since I've just moved to Louisville. I'm not too far away anymore. When I lived in Richmond, that wasn't exactly as convenient as yeah. it is now. Go but create create an account on the iSportsman.net. iSportsman.net. I'm going to look into that. And luckily, I, I don't need to take a, a note because I can listen to this podcast later and get it. So um, <clears throat> November, like you said, pinch points, funnels. I'm looking for, for travel corridors. And sometimes the edge of a creek is nice because it's kind of a boundary, field edges. Creeks are nice too because you got to consider these bucks are, are moving, covering a tremendous amount of ground and they're not really eating much. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. They're, they're, um, if you need to take that, feel free. They're, they're just covering a lot of ground. Okay. So let's move into December. Post rut, let's just call it post rut. Right. Um, and of course, all the all the foliage is gone. Let's just say it's cold out. What are those deer doing then? And no, December and January, because it's pretty much they're getting back on the food bag. Is how is how well, like. Although I, there is still some rut activity. Um, I feel well, there's a if the does don't get bred, they'll things keep going. Right. If the does don't get bred, or if they didn't come in, you, sometimes you have fawns that once they hit 80 pounds, they themselves are sexually mature and will come in. Is that kind of the 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 what am I, baseline, 80 pounds? Yes. So if a, when a fawn hits 80 pounds, she will try to come in to eat. Yes. That's interesting. Huh. So, so that's that, live weight, not field dress weight. And we, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we know that uh, during the ride, a lot of deer are running hard. Like you said, bucks aren't necessarily focused on eating. Right. So they probably lose quite a bit of body mass. And then in the winter, it's cold. They need more body mass. Right. So I'm assuming they try to hit whatever food source is available pretty hard right when they come out of the rut. Absolutely. So those would, would that be nuts? Uh, no. I mean, it, it, there's some acorns left. You know, a lot of times it's the acorns that weren't as preferable. Uh -huh. you, you've got trees that just drop later. Okay. But one of the overlooked things in my areas that people don't pay a lot of attention to are hedge apples. Hedge apples. Yeah, that's true. Now, do you love hedge apples? Yeah, and you'll see them smashed up on the ground where they, it almost seems like they take their hoof and they... Once they, they start freezing and thawing, they get mushy. Uh -huh. So, yeah, and they will kick them with their hooves. But yeah, I've heard I, that I, before. I cut them up with a machete in front of my trail camera this time of year when you have dry weather. They eat them like candy. Really? Yes. Hedge apples. Hedge apples. I'm going to start... Think so. Not only do you get your bow from the from the Osage orange, but you get your bait from it too. Uh, yeah, I tell you. <laughs> I, and I learned this sitting in a stand observing deer. I was hunting the edge of a, a fence row next to an alfalfa field, mm -hmm. and a storm like we had last night came through, and big old hedge apple tree that was three trunks just split open, and one side of it fell into the field. Mm -hmm. And the alfalfa field is right up from me a ways, and deer were coming through that alfalfa field, coming to this broken hedge apple tree to eat leaves off the hedge apple tree. Yeah, I've heard the fresh fresh leaves are something that they like also. And hedge apples yeah. stay pretty green later into the season, right? Then they do. I mean, they're, they're losing their leaves, you know, in late yeah. October. Okay. And, you know, they've got a milky sap. Deer love them. If you notice when you're in the woods or on the edges of the fields, any branch that's hanging over, all the leaves are eaten yeah. within a deer's normal reach. So hedge apples are pretty widespread through the whole state. More, more so in the bluegrass region. Bluegrass and 
probably western central part of the state. Yeah. Western Kentucky has a few, but I don't feel like I see many in eastern yeah. Kentucky. No, you don't see them in eastern Kentucky much. They unless it's some place that has cattle. They do have a lot of oaks out there, though, in eastern they Kentucky. They have a lot more oaks than we do. So in they this might part have of the a state. better acorn mast out there. Yeah, and the deer are more of an acorn driven. Yeah, that's that's good good advice though. Look for the hedge apples late in the season when there's not a whole lot of other food sources around, acorns that are still on the ground or hedge apples because I do feel like I see a lot of hedge apples late into the season, and when those bucks come out of the rut and they're worn down, they need some some body mass to put back on. They might be looking in that direction. And you can run over them or chop them up, and you'll you'll see the deer utilize them. Huh? I might put, put them in, in front, in front of, of the trail camera. Yeah. You'll see what I'm talking about. I've got a few more trail cameras to put out, and. Uh, I might try that with one of them. I just I went through my old stuff the other day and dug up a couple cameras. I have to see which ones still work and which ones don't. But running trail cameras is fun in general. Just I mean, as a hobby, checking trail cam pictures is a lot of fun. It's catch and least catch and release trapping. Yeah. Well and you do it you do it a lot. <laughs> I've I've seen your videos before on the department's Facebook page and and whatnot, those turkey videos you had of a, a hen. Is was it over a dusting site? Yeah, I yeah, I created a dusting site for her to use. Okay. Every time it would rain, I would take dry dirt back out there and put in the dusting site. And so you would take dirt out there? And well, I was wanting to get videos of her and her poults and see how many poults survived. And yeah. if I let it get muddy and turn yeah. to a hard packed thing, she would just go on. That's kind of cool. So do you, you run trail cameras for specific animals in specific areas? Most people run them for deer, let's just right. be honest. Most people run them for deer. I've done carcass cams before in the winter. Or if, you know, when gun season comes in, a lot of times I've got my deer out of the way. I'm not too worried about scouting specific deer again. So I will take uh, carcasses that have been cleaned. So it's like I'll go to my taxidermist and um, get some scraps or something like that. And neck, neck roasts? Well, that's good meat. <laughs> that's good. I don't waste that. Well, I mean, if you don't know who killed it and when they killed it and how long it's been yeah. laying in the floor, it's kind of a different story. The... Uh, <laughs> We kind of, you know, as a group of buddies, we kind of have a central spot that we go to clean our deer also. Somebody who has a, you know, electric winch and a garage with a drain in the middle and a, everything that we need there. So a lot of times we'll just take those carcasses and put them out somewhere and tie them down, tie them to a tree or something like that and put a trail camera on them. I like to see the coyotes, the fox, you'll get bald eagles, lots yeah, of lots yeah. of buzzards. Certain places in the state late in the year you'll get golden eagles. Golden, yeah, it's near Burnham from what I understand. In eastern Kentucky. Eastern too. The strip mines. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's cool to run to run cameras for animals other than deer. I see a lot of videos where people put them up on a log. Right, a log crossing. Log crossing, and you will get everything. Animal, Turkeys. Animals you didn't know were there. Right. I would like to, I mean, I'm sure in certain parts of the state you could probably get mink or bobcat or, or you know, like you said, turkey, coyote, fox. Um, Bear, bears will destroy a camera. So yeah. if you're in bear country, you might consider a... A bear, bear proof case. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know what? It's destroyed more of my cameras. Well, you know, I've had a few cameras get destroyed by. I like creeks. I like scouting creeks. And occasionally we'll get this thing called a flash flood. <laughs> and that has destroyed several of my cameras before. But people are the worst. Yeah. When it comes to people. And that's almost, I told you I got a cell camera the other day. I'm almost excited about this because if somebody does walk up, it sends me the picture immediately. Well, at least you have a picture who stole it. Exactly. And it's a small world. So you might be able to. Show it to one of my cop buddies and, and figure it out. That, that's true. Cell cameras are going to, and I've hunted for 20 years. I started hunting when I was 11. You talked about your experience earlier. When I, I nobody in my family bow hunted either. So I literally went to the flea market in Shelby County, you know, there in Simpsonville, picked up a bear whitetail too, 
and some camo, practiced in my backyard, told my dad, I've told this story before on the podcast, so I'm rushing through it, told my dad I wanted to go hunting, uh, found five acres to hunt on up there on Jephthah Knob in Shelby County, and went out there, and of course we didn't have cell phones back then, this right. is 2000, so I didn't have cell phone, my dad said I'll be back here at 1030 to pick you up, and uh, when he pulled back in the driveway, I was sitting on a deer, <laughs> you know, so I'd, I just happened to get really lucky, and it was like... A, f- a fawn from that year. But of course, I was 11 years old hunting by myself, so. Those small ones are harder to hit than the big ones are. Yeah, that's what I said, too. And the meat is... They're a lot easier to drag out yeah, of the woods, Well, too. if I was 11, I don't think I could get a 200-pounder out by myself. But the... Um, so from that time, when I started hunting, to now, the changes that have taken place, not just with bows and things like that, but I think the technology is completely different as far as trail cameras, how people scout, how people find properties to hunt. And the cell phone has had a lot to do with it. Sure. That and just computers in general. You used to have to go to the Farm Services Agency and the, the, yeah. or the PVA and get yeah. a copy of a aerial photograph yep. to look at. Now you can get on Google Maps well, at yeah, any point in time. You just pull it out of your pocket. And, yep. and it's crazy that the resources that everyone has at their fingertips now compared to you probably used to have to did they give you wind direction on the daily forecast on the news when you so if you got up it so you were basically going outside and feeling the wind sticking your finger in the air licking your fingers to get in here but now you can get on your phone you can get the wind direction for the next 12 hours hour by hour you can get on your you can pull up a map you can see okay the wind's gonna be blowing that direction Mm -hmm. and everything everything moon moon phases there's there's so much that you you've got at your uh, at your fingertips. It's crazy. You know, I remember people actually marketed a spool of thread in, in a case that you put one part on one tree and another part on another tree and then when a deer walked through and broke the thread you could tell what direction they were going when they broke the thread. Oh, really? Yeah. So Okay. <laughs> so that was well before trail cameras then. And my first trail cameras were film. Right. So and I used to be able to go to, I'd have to, go to Kroger and get my 35 pictures developed for five bucks and I hope I got something. So I was making digital trail cameras myself uh-huh. before they were available on the market. So how'd you have to do that? There was a hack I found online mm-hmm. of, um, it seems like it was an Olympus camera, but you build a, made a box for it and you sealed it and you used a, like a garage door chime mm-hmm. to act it, you know, it was, uh, you know, it's, uh, the door chime when people walk in the door and you hear it go off in the store when you open the door. Uh-huh. Basically that was the, passive infrared technology that was used to trigger okay. a camera. You yeah. basically wire that into a... So it would be a point, to, would you have to put something on the other end also? No. Okay. Uh, it, it basically sensed heat and Okay. And uh, So you movement. made digital trail cameras back in the day. I mean, you could have made a lot of money if you'd have gotten into that game early. <laughs> well, it was, you know, and now, I mean, it wasn't too long ago I was still making some homebrew trail cameras, but they yeah. were it was $200 just to buy a good camera to make into a yeah. trail camera. Yeah. You know, and now, now you can buy on sale an excellent camera for 50 bucks. Yeah, exactly. I know that last year postseason, right after deer season went out, uh, Jameson, who works here as a videographer, he went to Rural King and picked up three Moultries that had been 130 bucks a piece for $50 a piece. And, I mean, you're talking about 150 bucks for cameras that the equivalent of five years ago would have cost $350 right. a piece. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy how much cheaper the technology's gotten to. So, speaking of prices, uh-huh. I, I fairly recently looked at one of my deer tags from 1980, 81, somewhere uh-huh. in there. A tag was 1250 Okay, 1250 for 1250 a deer tag. for one deer tag. 
Okay, well, that's not too much different. I mean, comparatively. Well, well you, now you can kill four deer for $30. Yeah, four deer for 30 depending on your county, of course. But depending on your county. Your zone, but here where we're at, you're in Woodford, I'm in Shelby, and I'm in Franklin. So pretty much zone one areas. Your zone, zone one. Zone one, zone two, zone three, yeah. you can kill four deer. Yeah. Well, I'm not so sure. You're still getting a bargain. It did change. It's still a bargain when oh. you compare prices. Listen, you know, I went to Old Charlie's last night and got just an appetizer to eat. Okay, I got an appetizer and a beer. And I'm telling you that I could... Uh, deer hunt an entire season tag cost for what I go and pay for one appetizer and, and one beer out to eat. So, I mean, it's ridiculous how cheap hunting is as a hobby to get into aside from the equipment cost. Right. But if you're just talking about annual, if you're not buying a new bow each year, you're using the same camo. Once you get the gear, you can reuse it for years and years. If you're talking about the annual reinvestment, it's pretty cheap as far as tags and hunting, hunting license. It's a fact. I'll tell you what, I'm going to pull up some of these questions. Um, Oh, gosh, I for, forgot my girlfriend. I just saw a message pop up when I pulled this up. She went to the state fair today, and she uh, is apparently stuck on the grounds now. I didn't think about the fact that the state, the fairgrounds, is so close to the airport, and there happens to be a VIP uh -oh. heading into Louisville today. So they're on lockdown. I guess that the highways and stuff are shut down while Trump is landing and I got, I'm not sure exactly what he's doing in Louisville, but Trump's in town, and apparently it's causing some ruckus in Louisville. Um, let's see. I'm this glad I didn't volunteer to work the fair today. Oh, Jameson went. <laughs> That's, I forgot about that. How do you get bigger bucks to use your property slash or stay on your property year-round? That's Logan Webb. How do you get bigger bucks to use your property or stay on your property? Two things. A sanctuary, if you yeah. have the acreage, you can create a sanctuary that you don't go. So make them feel like they don't have to leave. Yes, and don't hunt where your scent's blowing into that sanctuary, and don't hunt the edges of it. Yeah, That will make a big difference. If a buck has safety, he can, he can bed safely and feel comfortable. He, he's more likely to stay there and grow up there and continue as he grows older. Uh -huh. you know, a buck doesn't really produce uh, antlers that he has the potential genetically to produce until his body has slowed down where his minerals aren't going to his skeletal system. Yeah. So, you know, at least four or five years old before they ever really peak out. Peak out. Yeah. And then, so is there, could there be a, a habit, so something not related to that, could there be a habitat-related reason that makes a deer leave at a certain time of year and maybe go to the neighbors? Do they need something different? Well, I mean, there, there's sometimes social issues with, with other bucks. I mean, I've, I've had bucks on trail camera that were in velvet. They lose their velvet. I never see them again until January. And I don't know the answer to why yeah. they do that or where they go. It's just that they aren't where I have access. They to just them. want that south facing hillside instead of that north one. Possibly. Yeah. Or, or they're 10 miles away. I mean, it's, you know, some of the telemetry studies from across the country have shown some really amazing things with deer. You know, some deer are homebodies, some deer, the deer that are homebodies are more likely to live to be mature deer. Yeah than deer that are roamers. I've seen, I've had deer before that I swear don't leave the general area, even during the rut. And then we have deer that we have tracked on trail camera from my farm to a buddy's farm two miles away to another farm a mile and a half from that, and that's as a crow flies. So there's no telling what tree lines and stuff. I mean, we're talking about over five miles of ground covered probably for this deer to get from point A to point B, so. Let's see, this person asks, uh, what cell camera are you running? It's a Moultrie 7000i. Picked it up, it was like 180 bucks. And it had a $50 melon rebate. If I wouldn't have lost my receipt, I could have got it for 130 after after all that was over. But I didn't. I lost my receipt. Um, okay, this is a good one for you. 
Um, Boatwright326 on Instagram, the direction bedded deer face depending on wind is something I'd like to hear about. Because I know that they do, I, the way I understand it, they look into the direction the wind's blowing because they can kind of smell what's the other way and it gives them 360. Is that the way you understand it? Generally, I, I don't think they really think about it from that perspective. It's just natural to I, them, whatever it is. I think it's just, it's just instinct that they want to smell what they can't see yeah. and they want to see what they can't smell. Well, just, just That's a survival thing that... That's, I'd say that probably plays out for lone deer. But then again, just like all animals, when they're in groups, they usually face opposite directions. I'm looking this way, you're looking that way, and that way we have eyes everywhere. So. Unless the topography doesn't allow them to do yeah. that. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's probably pretty, it's pretty unique on an individual basis where you're hunting, you know, based on the land, based on the topography, based on if there's other deer close by. But typically I've seen they face away from the wind so that they're looking downwind, smelling upwind. That's kind of my, this person also asked, uh, when and why do buck summer patterns change and bachelor groups break up? Generally, the bachelor groups start breaking up from my experience uh, at the very beginning of what I call the pre-rut. So around the 10th to 15th of October is when you're going to see most of them really separate. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, I've seen, I feel like I see some bucks break up a little bit sooner. And I also feel like, you know, I've read somewhere recently that deer are individuals. Deer are individuals. You, know, you can't assume everything is going to be true. One thing's going to be true for all deer because deer are individuals and they have their individual personalities. And I, there are bucks right now, especially bigger bucks on my cameras that are already alone. Yeah, well, and then I was getting ready to say that. You also have to consider the age class of the deer. Yeah. More mature bucks are definitely gonna be more loners sooner. Um, yeah. Because they're, you know, the testosterone levels are different. You might have some two and a half year old bucks that hang out together all yeah. the way up into the rut. Oh, you, I, you know, so, you know, and year and a half old bucks you, you may be through the rut. Yeah. That's their way of distracting yeah. A mature buck while the other buck pursues the doe. I mean, you, you know, they tag team, kind of like Jake's in the spring. The, yeah, that's that's true. I've seen, I saw a bachelor group of about five bucks together last mid-October, and they were hanging out, and they were kind of sparring around, but they weren't pushing each other off. They weren't getting, you know, angry with each other. And then I had a big, nice buck come in to the sound of them sparring, and yeah. I shot it. So, so. so I, I mean, I, you know, when I hunt, I run trail cameras enough generally on the properties that I hunt that I, I know which bucks tend to hang out together early. So when I see a particular buck, I can think, okay, I know that the guy I'm after is usually in this bachelor group. Yes. So it helps me to be ready. Yep. It doesn't always give me the opportunity because more eyes are more problematic. The buck that I'm hunting right now is a loner at this point. He comes through by himself, which I'm perfectly fine with. I'd rather, I'd rather have a uh, one set of eyes coming through that I'm, I can know where they're focused. And that's a problem with, that's another problem with feeding corn is because a lot of times you end up with, you know, 10 alert sets of eyes around you. And when that buck does come in, you, cause I, I used to feed corn quite a bit. And I mean, it would, it could be more difficult in some situations than it, than it was helpful. They pattern you more than you pattern them yeah. under those circumstances. Early, this is a Felix, early season fawn distress calls. I'm mostly looking for a doe in September. Should I, how should I use those calls? I wouldn't. I, I, you know, I've never done this before. So here, here's my theory on this. When you have a doe, you're using a fawn distress call and you're bow hunting, that deer is on, so much on edge 
that even if you get a shot, she's more likely to jump the string than Because she's already alert. Because she's on edge. That's, that's a good point. If a deer's alert to you, you, your shooting distance is cut in half. You know, because if a deer's, I, I feel comfortable with my compound. I know we're in different boats there, but with my compound, I'll take a 30-yard shot. You know, if I feel really comfortable, I'll stretch it out to 35 if, if I'm, everything's right. But if that deer's looking at me, or it's alert to me in some way, no. Because those deer are quicker than you could ever imagine. If a deer's looking at me, I pretty much cut it to 20. You know what I mean? Because they can, they can jump quicker than you think. And if you have a doe that's already on edge, I will say this. Those uh, fond distress calls do pull some does in. Absolutely, right? and bucks. I use them not to deer hunt. Coyote hunting. I use them for coyote hunting. And when I hit that call, a lot of times there's a doe or two busting across a wide open field running straight to me. I had five bucks run into fawn distress call one January when I was trying to call. You know, that's a call I'll use sometimes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of coyote hunters don't use that in January. I, I don't use them in January either. I use it usually when the hay fields have been cut for the first time. But anyway, yeah, it still works in January, and it's been surprising to see deer respond to it. It's more of just a natural response they have. But, and also, if you're hunting for a doe, if you're talking about hitting a fawn distress call, you're, you're looking for a five-minute hunt once you get to the stand because it's either going to be all or nothing pretty quick. I would say stretch it out and enjoy it. You know, sit in the stand, watch, watch everything for a while. You'll learn some stuff just watching um, deer movement, deer behavior. And at Felix here, I've met him before on a field to fork. Okay. Um, outing. So I've got a feeling that he's fairly new to deer hunting and sitting in the stand and putting the time in is enjoyable and it's how you get better. So hitting a fond distress call and trying to bring a doe in that way might be counterproductive to becoming a better hunter in a way. It's something that I would do when I decide, well, I'm going to quit hunting here in the next 30 minutes, so I'm going to use a fond distress yeah, call. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good way to do it. Let's see what else we have here. Um, what is the best time to enter the stand during the early season, mornings or evenings? The place, it depends on the place you hunt. Yeah, it says, I have a stand set up near several intersecting trails. What should I put out as far as, so quite a bit to this question, coming back, potential area. Oh yeah, yeah, it depends on where you hunt. As far as the morning or evening question goes, most people feel more secure going to the stand in the evening. Um, because you, you always run the risk of bumping something out in the morning on your, on your way in. That's a fact. And, um, but me right now, I'll be honest about the deer I'm hunting. He is, every time he's come through my, on camera, he's coming through between 6.45 and 8.30. And every single time he's been walking from the same direction to the same direction. So because he hasn't come in after, after daylight or before daylight, I feel fairly confident that, you know, if that pattern keeps up, that I can get in there before he comes to that area. He's also walking from the exact opposite direction that I'm gonna be walking from. So it's not like I, I feel confident based on his pattern that I can get in there and get in my stand half an hour, 45 minutes before he's likely to show up. So, and I don't have a lot of deer activity around that spot. So I feel like that's a morning spot for me. But if I'm hunting a field edge like you are, it's a little bit more risky. Because in if, the morning. if there's deer in that field, chances are you're bumping them as you go. So that's just my opinion on this seems like evenings are safer bets in the early season. Once you educate them to where your stand is, it gets more complicated. Your chances of killing a nice deer are much better the first time you ever hunt that stand than any other time you hunt it. Yeah. This part, uh, actually, let me see who that one was from a second ago. Um, 
West Midden. All right, I just had a, another one come through, but I lost it. Best way to keep trespassers off your property from South Paul Outdoors. Best way to keep trespassers off your property. Signs on the boundary that say hunting rights leased. Hunting rights leased. And I mean, if you find people trespassing, say you catch somebody trespassing. Well, I mean. You need to contact your game sheriff warden. or if, game if, warden. if you're serious about it, you really don't want people trespassing, then contact your game warden. 1-800-25-ALERT is the number. And that'll send you through either, it, it'll either go to the state police dispatch, which will contact a game warden for you, or it'll put you straight through to a game warden. I'm not sure. But it's 1-800-25-ALERT if you catch somebody trespassing. I've seen a lot of people use the whole public shaming method where they get a picture of somebody on their trail camera and they'll post it on Facebook and anybody know who this guy was? He's a trespasser and, and people don't like to be publicly shamed. So I don't know. I, I can't speak to that. I'm not an expert. It's probably a sensitive subject, but when, when you have to be willing to, pre you, you have to be the landowner or someone who has the power of attorney to be able to press charges yeah. in the first place. You know, it, if it's someone who could be legally there, you, know, you just want to be careful of how you approach things because it could cost you a place to hunt. Yeah. So we're some of these questions are things that I'm not going to touch on because, no offense, you're, the, you're a private lands biologist and I consider you to be a deer hunting expert and knowledgeable person, but some things are meant for Gabe Jenkins to answer. He's the official deer and elk program coordinator. So some things I just don't want to speak on as far as... I mean, if people are asking, like... EHD questions and things like that, I certainly don't mind addressing them. Well, I know that, let's see, some of these are like about prices of license or oh. number of uh, number of tags and things like that. So those are kind of questions for, for Gabe. This is one, I don't know if you'll know, it's not even deer related. Do you have to buy a bear tag if the bear's on your own land? Yes. Yes, but is, is that true for deer also? No. See, so that's a, that's a good question. So if you're a deer hunter in the state of Kentucky and you own the property that you're hunting on, you do not need a license or a permit. The landowner, his spouse, his dependent children. And that's only if they live on the property also, right? N no, not, depend not dependent children. I mean, okay. You know, the landowner okay. and his dependent children. Now you're talking about a tenant is a different story. They have to live on the land and work the land. All right, so you said you don't mind touching on EHD. I uh, I would, because I'm not an expert at all, but I guess you're a biologist, so I'll let you do it. Um, what counties are seeing EHD cases this summer? That's Andy Feige. I've heard of scattered reports across the state, which we tend to have every year. Yeah, I know that EHD is, it's not like a, it's, it's annual. It happens every year on some scale. So what really causes big outbreaks is when you have a lapse of several years and the immunity isn't present in the herd and then all of a sudden they're not immune to it at all. Uh -huh. And that's when you can have some pretty severe die-offs. That makes sense. Aaron Norton, if you're going to donate a deer to Hunters for the Hungry, how do you go about doing so? Also, should you field dress a deer that will be donated? So, yes, you yeah. should field dress a deer that's going to be donated. So I actually ran into Roger LaPointe, who's president for Hunters for the Hungry at the State Fair last week, and he's going to come on sometime soon. Right. Um, I, don't th I think I'm going to try to have him on before youth weekend. Um, that way it's closer to gun season, it's closer when most deer will be getting killed, but they've got some new programs he wants to talk about. So if you're wanting to donate a deer to Hunters for the Hungry, you can look up a list of processors on their website, and then 
If you're doing it early in the season, chances are they're going to have availability. After gun season, you might want to check. So you can call that processor and, and make sure that they're willing to take a deer for hunters for the hungry. They most likely are, especially early in the year. And then once you do that, you just go out, you harvest the deer, field dress it just like you would a deer of your own, and then take it to the processor and drop it off. You don't have to skin it or cape it. You just basically field dress it and take it to the processor, and they will take care of it from there. And they donate the meat to a local um, shelter or charity or, or something like that in pretty much every case. So the, the meat goes right back into the community, which is a good part about it. And what the way it works is those processors have a set price established with Hunters for the Hungry, and Hunters for the Hungry pays for that deer to be processed. So that's a, it's a pretty good organization. I would look into donating to it for sure. Especially if you have extra deer that need to be taken off your property and you don't have the freezer space for them. This person, what is your favorite caliber when deer hunting? Personally, I like a 350 grain arrow with a 100 grain broadhead. But if you're talking guns, what's what's your favorite caliber? The only rifle I will ever buy uh, is a 243 yeah, that I, I bought when I was 15. That's what you told me earlier. <laughs> if you're talking about deer calibers, obviously, um, 243 gets it done just fine. It does. I've never lost a deer. Yeah. And 243 is a great round. And it's a good round all around. Groundhogs, coyotes, deer. You can do a lot of stuff with a 243. You just, if you ever go elk or bear hunting, you're going to need to step it up to something 270 or bigger. <laughs> That's the and only problem. In Kentucky, problem. Colorado will let you hunt with a 243. I know a lot of people hunt with a 223 for elk. And neck, oh, wow. sh neck shots in Colorado is what I've heard. That's what I've heard. I've never done. Um, personally, 243. Uh, you can't deny the trusty 3030, nope. a 308, 25-odd-6, 270, 30-odd-6. Those are probably the most popular deer calibers of all time. Two, I, four, I would look at what ammo is most readily available at your closest store. That, that, that's kind of what would help me decide. If I was going to buy a gun, what can I get ammo for so that I can shoot a lot and become really familiar with that gun? Or get into reloading. I personally am a big fan of standard calibers. Um, I like the 308 a lot. 308 is about as... Wide, I mean, it's a it's a widely dependable caliber. There's a ton of ammo options out there from target shooting to hunting. You can hunt, you know, anything from coyote to elk and bear with it in the state of Kentucky. 270 it, as well. 270 is great. I love a 270. It depends on where you hunt to. I mean, a 308, a 270, a 30-odd-6, a 25-odd-6, a, a 280, a 264, they can all handle shots further than you're ever going to want to shoot a deer in the state of Kentucky. So unless you're, you know, those are, any one of those calibers will get it done. <laughs> I mean, I probably harvested 20 deer with a rifle before I quit rifle hunting in 1990. And all but three or four of those were within 30 yards. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, what I found when I shoot deer with a rifle. Well, sometimes I just set up over a big open field and I just kind of wait. But that's because I'm doe hunting. I'm not being super selective. Uh, this person asked, uh, the wildcat bow, uh, this is another Instagram question. What's the waterfowl numbers looking like in Kentucky this year? And I plan on having Wes Little on again soon to preview dove season. So I don't know if you want to hit, touch that or I can I, save it. It's hard to say. I haven't heard. I don't think they really started you know, flying we're, yet. We're banding wood ducks right now, and, and I'm not catching as many wood ducks as I typically do. Um, whether that indicates anything statewide or not, I haven't heard. Yeah. The dove population where I am is really strong, though. Yeah. Huddle Evan, um, what's the best way to get bucks to come by your camera or stand more consistently? Mock scrapes in October 
is the best way to capture every buck that's in the area that's, that's in the breeding um, age category. Yeah, because they're going to want to come by and if, show them. If you find a good, I mean, I found some really active community scrapes uh, late August before. Just like when I take my dog for a walk, I know that him and every other dog in the area is peeing on that one street corner. Exactly. So that's the same thing the deer are doing that time of year. They all got to go pee on that corner. And, and that's something you can trigger or you can make yourself. If, mm -hmm. you, if you know where these scrapes are from previous years, you can utilize mm -hmm. that. And it is an effective way of getting buck pictures. This time of year, I would say, think about your stand and camera location. You know, it might not be bringing them to you. It might be figuring out where they're already at and mm -hmm. put your camera up in a local, and maybe find a better pinch point or better, better funnel or a, a, you can identify creek crossings real easy. You can just see the trails cutting up and down the creek bank or a, uh, a fence crossing, you can see where the deer have jumped a fence and the area is worn. Just find an area where the deer almost have to go if they want to cross or travel through that area. Does that make sense at all? Absolutely. I'm not a big fan of, of big open woods because you can't narrow down right where the deer are going to be. I like finding those real tight pinch points. Um, let's see. Sometimes that's a gate, an open gate on a farm is a, an excellent place to get a picture of that's true. every deer that you know, comes through the pasture. True. Let's see. Oh, I don't think that's a serious question. When do deer turn into elk was a question there. I don't think that that's a, I'm not going to respond. Hmm. Somebody asked earlier and I can't find it now, but I, I did read, I did read through some of these earlier and I saw he was asking how to pick a spot to hunt in open woods. So do you have any advice on that? Well, Pick, pick oak trees that are dropping yeah. acorns or yeah. persimmon trees or something that's a food source. You know, big woods bucks are really the hardest to hunt, in my opinion, because yeah. you can't narrow down where they're going to be as easily. Yeah. But finding the right trees that deer are feeding under is a key. Yeah, that's true. I mean, food source or water, I guess. Or mid-October to late October, early November, rattling yeah. and bringing them to you. That's one of the reasons that I think hunting on public land is a little bit harder, depending on where you go. I've gone to some public land before that was big woods, and it was hard to narrow it down like it is in this farmland around here, around the horse farms, where you have patches of, of good-sized woods with fingers that run off of them. And you know, in Shelby County, where I'm at, it's, it's cropland, so you get a lot of um, tree lines along field edges with occasional patches of woods here and there. It's, it's easier to narrow down the travel Right. travel in those areas. Big woods look for power line edges, look for things like that where succession is set back, you know, yeah. a timber cut, a little, little small clear cut, anything that's different than everything else around Maybe it, an old, that's something that's going to stand out to a deer. An old road or four-wheeler trail. Absolutely. That runs through the woods is, uh, is something I've seen some luck on before. Let's see, I think that's all the questions I had um, as far as that goes. Um, see if I have anything else written down here. We've gone for plenty of time though, so what are things that you look for when choosing a hunting spot? You already got that. Went through some of the seasons. What's changed the most since you started hunting? You already told me about um, kind of what you do as a as an employee here for the, the department. Right. I think we've hit on everything well, I wanted to hit on. You yes. know, an aspect of that yeah. that you know, you, I would like to discuss. When I, when I started working with private landowners in 1991, maybe 5% of the hunter or the hunters that I met with on their properties baited for deer. Okay. And now maybe 5% don't. Yeah. So I, th I think that's true. So that's a 
a huge swing in, in technique. You know, the blinds have become popular. You know, pop-up blinds weren't even a thing in 1990. Yeah. And good or bad, you know, it, it does artificially increase carrying capacity, which can potentially spread disease easier. Yeah, that's, it, that's why, I mean, there are no bait laws in Indiana, um, which is a CWD positive state, correct? I think Indiana's the only one around us that isn't. isn't. So Tennessee. T correct, Tennessee. Like, so yeah, baiting can definitely increase the chance of disease being spread. I know it also increases density of raccoon populations, which can be harmful to turkey populations. I, I, I don't bait, but well, if you had to ask me why more people do it, it has something to do with trail cameras. Trail cameras is a big part of it. And you know, and I discuss it when I meet with landowners. You know, so what's your opinion of baiting? You know, they usually ask me that question, and, and I, I tell them, well, I think it's fine if you want to kill a deer over bait, or if you want to get deer in front of a camera, but don't think you're helping the deer. Yeah. By feeding corn. I don't think. I mean, I'm sure people do, but as far as I know personally, most people don't think that they're contributing to the deer's, you know, health or well-being. A, a lot of people want to feed corn all year, even if they're not hunting, mm. thinking that they're going to stock, you know, stockpile all the deer on their property and the neighbors can't have a crack at them. Uh, no, that, that's sort of the... There's so much food available. Well, there is. There is. Deer definitely will eat corn. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it's not the most healthy thing. I mean, deer actually will die sometimes if all of a sudden you, you put corn out there and they're not used to eating corn. Their, their flora in their stomach, for example, isn't... Um, designed to break down corn. Yeah. They, can, they can get a full stomach and not be able to break it down and then die from yeah. that. So here in the bluegrass area, I'd say a lot of deer eat corn regularly in on their own. But say you went to eastern Kentucky where there's not a cornfield around, there's no naturally occurring corn, and you dump 200 pounds of corn on the ground, that could potentially be harmful it, to those It could. It's, I mean, it's, it's not likely, but yeah, you know, if one just filled up on corn and couldn't digest hmm. it, then yeah, they could, they could die from it. Hmm. And likewise, if they've been on this corn since August uh -huh. and November comes, hunting season's done, and that's all they've done is laid down the hill and went up and ate out of the corn pile, yeah. potentially, and this is, again isn't likely because they browse everything, yeah. they could die from not having corn because everything in their stomach isn't designed to break down browse. Yeah, that makes sense. So. I, you know, most deer are going to forage around, and it seems like you right. know there are certain nutrients that you get from an acorn that you don't get from corn, and vice versa. So it seems like naturally, a, fit, a deer would want to diversify what it's eating, but I'm sure not all do. Um, so as far as baiting goes, that's kind of your opinion on it. Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely increased. I mean, I hear people talk of, you know, I spend more money on corn than I do on yeah. my lease which is crazy to me because some of the lease prices are so high. Yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous. And I just, it's hard for me to imagine, hmm. to be honest. The, uh, that's one, it has to, in my opinion, it has to be changed by trail cameras because when you think about the benefits a person has of feeding corn, one of the main ones is getting the deer centralized in one spot where, and if that seems like running trail cameras is kind of geared towards that. Otherwise, I mean, that, that's kind of my well, opinion. The downside of it is, you know, deer, if they know there's a food source, they just go to the food source and then they're only nocturnal. So yeah. some people are like, well, you don't see any big bucks except at night. 
they're being trained to do that. Yeah, I know that uh, where I hunt out, like I said, I don't feed, but those deer aren't going hungry. There, <laughs> there's right. there's food everywhere right. for them. And uh, anyway, you got anything else you want to hit on, Joe? No, just so give give people your number. Give them the most important thing for improving their property, their hunting property. If they're worried about deer, turkey, and regular hunting opportunities, what's the number one thing they should do? Well, from a turkey standpoint, increasing nesting cover, which also increases deer bedding cover. Well, I know you talked earlier about feathering the edge, tree edge line. feathering, lack of mowing. You know, don't don't do any mowing. Uh, outside of or during the nesting period, fawning period, if you can avoid mowing until mid-July and not mow after mid-August, then you have enough regrowth that you've got good cover for things to begin to nest in yeah. the, the next spring. Yeah, there you go. That's a good good piece of advice. And I know I've talked to Zach Danks, a turkey biologist who I know you were working with just yesterday. And he said that, you know, there is a drop off in the number of poults per hen survival in the uh, springs and summers. So that's why we do our counts. And uh, a big part of that is a lack of uh, most suitable nesting area. And then basically, you know, the, the hens are having just as many poults, but the raccoons are finding them easier. The opossums are finding them easier. They're finding the eggs. Finding the eggs, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they aren't able to hide as well. Exactly. So it's really just an increase in the mortality rate of our of our poults and our eggs. Right, and, and those hens like to go to tall, grassy, weedy areas mm -hmm. to, to initiate those nests just because it's harder for predators to find them. If they're restricted to fence rows and down treetops, it's just a lot easier for predators to locate those nest sites. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'll tell you what, Joe, I appreciate uh, you coming on today. Glad to do it. I'll be uh, looking forward to some you know, I'll post that photo later of you with that uh, deer, the 10-pointer last year. That's a good photo, and that way people will get an idea who it was, too. So I appreciate you coming on, and I will uh, be keeping up with you this hunting season. All right, good luck to everybody. Thank you.